this Lent, our congregation is taking a deep plunge into the Gospel of Mark. Um, we hear Mark on most Sundays in Lent. Uh, many of us are, are reading and praying along with a Lenten devotional that's based on our, our reading through the whole book of Mark with uh, comments and reflections by parishioners from our church and parishioners from our sister church in London. And then on Sundays at 10 a.m., we're reading Rowan Williams' book on the Gospel of Mark for a little more background. Um, today's Gospel is a perfect illustration of Mark's character and especially his brevity. He gets right to the point, and there aren't a lot of details. Today's Gospel basically tells us that Jesus is baptized and then goes into the wilderness. There in the wilderness for 40 days, Jesus is tempted by Satan, he's with wild beasts, and he's helped by angels. And then through that process, he is somehow strengthened and renewed, and he goes into Galilee and preaches, even though he knows John has just been arrested. In Mark's gospel, we don't know the details of Jesus' being tempted. We don't know how Satan tempted him or what those temptations might have looked like. If we turn to Matthew and Luke, we get the, the fuller story. We're told that Jesus is tempted by Satan uh, to turn stones into bread, to, to receive all the kingdoms of the world, to jump off the high pinnacle and be caught on angels' wings. We hear one version of this Jesus going to the wilderness and being tempted story um, the first Sunday of every Lent. We read one version or another. And so I think the church is trying to tell us something with this uh, uh, ongoing um, invitation to, to look and listen and read and, and get to know these scriptures. I think the church wants us to hang on to the fact that Jesus himself was tempted, that Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, was like us to such an extent that he too was tempted. And so whenever we are tempted, we can take some heart that Jesus has been there. Jesus understands. We can pray for Christ to strengthen us, to help us navigate the, the wilderness, um, maneuver among the wild beasts, speak truth to the devil, and receive the help of holy angels. We don't know what those temptations were for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, whatever they were, they probably were sort of uniquely suited to what would be tempting for Jesus. Just as the, the devil is so slick and sly as to put before me and you those very things that would tempt us. Satan would never tempt me to eat liver because I don't plan on eating liver. <laughs> Instead, it would be um, sea salt popcorn or something. <laughs> you get the idea. Somehow, temptations seem to be tailor-made for each one of us. And that's the way the devil works. He, he or she or it exploits our weakest points, takes advantage when we're tired, 
or exaggerates things when we're feeling down or blue or challenged, then the devil blows those beyond all proportion. The church has sometimes offered the language of virtues and vices or virtues and sins as a means for us to gauge how we're doing in the spiritual life. They're offered as a guide for one to sort of notice one's behavior. And then uh, perhaps if we can notice it and name it, then the, the devil has less of a chance of slipping in between and catching us off guard. The classic virtues of the church, and in many churches they're in mosaics in the floor or somewhere in the windows. Um, it's easier to remember them that way. They're not in ours, so I guess we have to own them. But those classic virtues are the things like chastity and temperance and charity and diligence or fortitude, patience, kindness, and humility. The list can change depending on the source and the tradition, but that's basically the seven classic virtues. Their counterparts, which probably have gotten much more airtime in the history of the church, are the classic seven sins, the cardinal sins, the really nasties, the ones that are so, so familiar to most of us. Pride and greed and lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. I don't know about you, but the last week or so, I've really been wrestling with the last two in that list, with wrath and sloth. When we heard on Wednesday that yet another shooting had happened, again in a school, and this time with 17 people killed right away. I don't know how you reacted to that, but for me, the the devil jumped in the middle of that story for me. And my go-to place is absolute wrath and anger. I want someone to blame, and I can think of people to blame really quickly. And so off my mind goes with who's to blame, who is absolutely evil, how we could fix this thing right away, on and on I go. That's the wrathful part. But then the other side of wrath, for me, is what the church has sometimes called sloth. You can imagine the animal, the sloth, is sort of hanging out in a tree. And that's the gentle version. We think of being slothful as just being lazy, kind of sitting on the couch all day and watching TV. But sloth had a different word in in the Latin sense, echidiae, and it was a, a kind of spiritual laziness. There's more to it than just simply hanging out. It's a kind of willful state of indecision of laziness, of of helplessness, of, oh, I just don't know what to do, so I'll just tune out. After I get tired of being so angry about something like the shootings in Florida, I run out of steam, and like a little kid who's thrown a tantrum, I go to that other extreme, to sloth. 
And I think with, with the current leadership, with the current Congress, with all the money flooding in, with, with so many people in our country who, who seem to think that the right to bear arms is intrinsic in their, their right of being a human, much less an American, there's nothing I can do, nothing we can do. You see how the devil works, right? The devil jumps in there and intensifies and exaggerates part of what's true, but makes it overwhelming and renders me useless and ineffective. To live in that place of absolute wrath or absolute sloth obviously gets nothing done. And that's the place of sin, I think. But there are those other things. There are those virtues which we can look to. Those virtues of, of, dilet- of diligence, of fortitude, of, of patience in some ways, of, of kindness, even to those who I disagree with, of humility, uh, to say for at least a second or two, perhaps I, John, don't have all of the answers in my head. I've got some of them, but not all of them. The scriptures in Ephesians remind us to be angry, but do not sin. I often use that at weddings. (laughs) It's a helpful thing to remember. Get angry. Anger is a gift. It's an an expression of, of the way things are and ought to be or ought not to be. Anger is justified and righteous and a holy and good thing. But when it gets too far, it falls into one of those bad areas. It becomes wrathful. It becomes too much. Be angry, but do not sin. That's especially useful, I think, when, when we begin to think about the, the, the use of guns in our country and, and, and laws and policies that seem not to confront them at all. We should be angry about a lot of that situation, but how to use that anger in prayerful, active ways to get things done not necessarily to yet accuse more people or call other people names or or isolate people even farther on whichever side of the issue they're on, but to use that anger as a means of conversation, as a means toward change. That's the real trick. That's the place of faith. That's the place for me, sure enough. I can be angry and dash off emails or letters or do my thing or give money to this cause or that cause. Much harder to work and pray and advocate. Even harder to to reason and implore and convince. Like it or not, if I had a magic wand and could change laws and policies, it would only solve a little bit of the problem. There are huge numbers of people in our country who really believe strongly that it's their right to have as many guns, as many different kinds of guns as they want, when they want and where they want. I can't change that, not through a law. I might not be able to change it through relationship and conversation, but that's the only means Our leaders seem paralyzed in their extremes, but we need not be. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He was with the wild beast, but the angels waited on him. We are in the wilderness. We are in the wilderness in terms of what our country can look like, what democracy should look like, how a government can function. 
what various leadership offices even look like anymore. We're in a wild place. The wild beasts are among us, and they're out there. But with prayer, with hanging on to the virtues, with, with the discipline of spirituality and prayer and being the people of the church and, and being with one another and trusting God, the angels begin to emerge one by one, a little at a time. But that's our hope. Perhaps that's our only hope. For Jesus in the wilderness, I like the way Mark puts it, that he was in the wilderness, he was tempted, there were wild beasts, and the angels came, almost as though it all happened at once. And you know what? It might have all happened at once. That would seem like reality if that were the case. We should beware of the devil, seeking to separate, seeking to isolate seeking to move us into a place of pride and willfulness and knowing it all with certainty. Rather, to be open to the Holy Spirit, to move us into difficult conversations, into demanding situations where we're forced to listen, where we're forced to love, where we're forced to be humble. It's then that if we're open, God might reveal the angels. In the first reading, we heard again how God put a rainbow in the sky to promise to Noah and his family that God would always be faithful in God's covenant, in God's love with God's people. The rainbows still exist, even if we can't see them, even if we forget to look up. God promises to keep us close. God promises the love of Christ. God promises the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The season of Lent invites us to practice age-old, time-tested spiritual disciplines in order to return to God's love, mercy, and forgiveness, even to return to God's presence. And so we continue to pray. We pray deeply and strongly and loudly, but we also continue to enact our prayers and turn them into action, sometimes angry action, angry but not sinful action. especially in these times when we're living in the wilderness and the wild beasts are all over the place. Let us lean into virtues like diligence and fortitude and kindness and humility, and let us be on the lookout for the angels of peace and mercy and new life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.